Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are on the final episode of season one of The Magicians, which is Have You Brought Me Little Cakes? Chris, can you give us a recap of what happens in this episode? Sure. Not very much. No, no, it's a pretty small one. The episode begins with Julia and Quentin going to meet the Florian god Ember, before Q takes us back to the preceding events that he's writing about in a book. Back in 1942, Julia and Quentin realize that they are the Witch and the Fool, who help Jane in the Fillory books. But which one is Quentin? <laughs> and then they meet Martin Chatwin, whom they promise to help find Jane. They commission a blade to kill the beast and meet the Watcherwoman, a future Jane Chatwin, who sends them to the present and to Penny, Elliot, Margot, and Josh. To collect the blade, Elliot marries the Blademaker's daughter, Fen, as he is revealed to be the High King of Fillory. Now caught up with a cold open, Quentin and Julia ask Ember to give them enough power to hold the blade, and so he grants Quentin his, uh, blessing. <laughs> so blessed. Ember also unlocks Julia's memories, revealing that she and her friends had been duped into summoning a trickster god called Reynard the Fox, who raped Julia and killed her friends. Penny, Alias, Elliot, and Margot rescue the beast prisoners, Victoria and Christopher Plover, who reveals that the beast is Martin Chatwin. Quentin struggles with his place in the story, and ultimately decides that Alice should wield Ember's magic and the blade instead of him. While Josh and Victoria return to Earth, the rest travel to the source of Fillory's magic, the Wellspring, to ambush the beast. There, the beast cuts off Penny's hands and easily takes down everyone except Quentin and Julia. Julia stole the blade from Alice, and is able to get the drop on the beast, but instead of killing him, she makes a deal for him to help her kill Renard. And there, the season ends. <laughs> it's such a terrible for the audience place to end the first season. Yeah, you I know? can't imagine waiting <laughs> six months or more for the next season to come out. I wonder how many people who hadn't read the books first just directly went to go buy the books so Seriously. that they could know what happened. And then because... got even more confused because they're like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> this isn't how things happened in the show. <laughs> yeah, it's the cliffhanger of all cliffhangers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, why don't we get into the magic moments? So as frustrating as it was to see this happen, I at least appreciated that Quentin commented that he also hates it when the book rewinds to fill in all the blanks. <laughs> I know. You'd never <laughs> felt more like Quentin. <laughs> exactly. Except that he's still doing it. I know. Which, you know. Chris hates that flash forward than flashback. I think that it is so rarely done effectively in a way that actually helps the storytelling. Yeah. Sometimes it is and yeah. it's good, but other times it's Most of the time like... it's a tropey gimmick to... It's just like, we haven't done one of these in our episodes yet. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, it bugs me. So I appreciated that line at least. How did you think it was used here? Yeah, I thought it was completely unnecessary because they absolutely could have just been going to Ember's tomb in the future. Like there's nothing mm -hmm. about that scene that made you think, how did they get here? It was just the two of them who were the only two together the last time we saw them. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think a part of it, it sets up Quentin's narration of the episode. That's exactly but, what it's doing. But yeah. it didn't necessarily need it to set up his narration, but it 
does do that because it adds like a little bit of his personality in there. But yeah, yeah, and I and I enjoy the conceit of the narration. I think that that is done well with all the chapter titles and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, it's it's funny because it's the type of thing that Quinton would be like, oh, I hate when this happens. Like he would make a comment mm-hmm. about the tropes within entertainment. Yeah, but I just don't understand why it's that scene in particular. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's true. But there were some other lines that I appreciated just for themselves. In that original scene, after Quentin gives the blood sacrifice, Julie's like, are you okay? And he just says, no, I just stabbed my own hand. (laughs) Very funny, but also, I think, a great way of highlighting how their friendship is back to normal. Like, they have a great rapport. I mean, I wouldn't say back to normal, but, like, comfortable again. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just great, too, because so often scenes where somebody has to do some sort of, like, blood sacrifice, it's just, like, so serious. Mm -hmm. And, like, here, it's not serious. It's, like, as if a real person was doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Very relatable. Is this going to work? Ow. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Margot mentions that Fillory is, like, a great big magical Dachau, which... I find as a very Margot line because it is dark and also not just like describing Auschwitz, the largest and most well-known of the Nazi death camps, mm. but Dachau, another one. So it's like also shows her intelligence there mm. and it's not just, you know, the obvious joke. Oh, Margot. And then when Elliot <laughs> calls Fen misses me. <laughs> oh my God. Excellent. Excellent. It's so good because I, you know, as a feminist, I'm always like, ugh, when it's like Mrs. and they change their name to whatever the guy's name is. But here, it's just like so funny because... Well, because Elliot is the one who wants this less. <laughs> <laughs> He's the one who has literally been sold into this relationship mm-hmm. in a way, you know? Like, I mean, we, we'll probably talk a lot about Elliot, but seeing his continued use of... And in some ways, like returned use of this glib sense of humor (laughs) in the face of this extraordinary circumstance, life-changing circumstance, Mm -hmm. is just great. Yes. (laughs) And then a couple Ember lines. Oh, yes. I mean, we have to talk about Ember. Right? For one, just, I've gifted you my bestowal. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love how you meet Ember. At first, it's like... It is customary to bow, children mm-hmm. of Earth. Almost the Wizard of Oz, sort of like this big, booming voice, and you don't see him. And then he comes into the view, and it's just like, with his shirt open, mm-hmm. and this... Just looking sleazy. It is, in this trash den. And then he's like, have you brought me little cakes? Like, it's just like, <laughs> the perfect way to be introduced. He's a god, but then he's this ridiculous. Like, you can't take him seriously, and you're not supposed to. You know, it just adds the the humor and, like, just delight of what Ember is Mm -hmm. just so quickly, which is great. And especially because in the books, he's... He's a weird little enigma, but here... He's an actual goat instead of a goat person. Yeah, yeah, in the books. (laughs) And so here, just changing him to this goat man and the actor bringing his ridiculous, delightful charm Mm -hmm. (laughs) is is just very good. It's very, very good. Uh, My favorite line was probably uh, when he surprised, spank my cheeks. Yes. (laughs) 
Every so often I think that in my mind when something happens and spank my jeans. Oh, too good. (laughs) My last two magic moments very quickly are just seeing Marina coming and wanting to help Julia. Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. We're continuing to see the depth of Marina as a character when she could have been written as just this kind of one-note villain, but we see her have real sympathy for clearly is an awful circumstance that happened to Julia. So that, that I think, is just a really nice moment in an awful event. Absolutely, because in this flashback, we see that Julia calls her and said, I need your help, something happened. And then she dropped the phone. So we don't even know if she explained anything more to Marina. Mm -hmm. But Marina showed up. Yeah. And Julia's like, I know it's going to cost me to have you help me do this. And she's just like, no, she's here to help. And I didn't choose Marina for my POV, but I was kind of thinking about her too. Mm -hmm. Just how it would feel to be in a circumstance like that where... This person has just gone through such a traumatic, horrible, violent, violating attack. And then them to think of you that you would require something of them for help. Yeah. Uh, if that would be like a moment for Marina of taking a step back mm-hmm. and internally and thinking about that that's what people would expect from her. They mm-hmm. wouldn't expect her to help for free, even when something like this happened. So, yeah, I I kind of wonder if that is like a punch to the gut, you know, like, ah, this is maybe not entirely who I want to be. I mean, one, it's not even her, right? She she is helping for free, Mm -hmm. but how she's interacted in other ways and these hierarchies she's set up and everything and how cruel she's been to other people like Katie, it's understandable that this would be what people expect of her. But, yeah, she's more nuanced than that. And I think it does show the care that she actually has for Julia. Yeah, absolutely. Since we're on this topic, I think Stella Maeve does just a really harrowing performance. Mm. I can't imagine how difficult it would be to act these scenes and to, like, try to get into that headspace of what Julia was experiencing. Yeah, I think she just did a really good job doesn't sound like that i don't know what to say about it but that it was really powerful yeah she shows a mastering of her craft mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah and then the final magic moment was just as they're walking into the wellspring mm, oh elliot and marco holding hands oh i didn't even notice yeah, that so cute that is right? cute oh they know they might be going to die oh mm. love it yeah, no, I was actually focused on the sinister framing of the mm-hmm, shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, the f- shot is really f- pulled from far away with the wellspring kind of in the distance. And we have this sinister music in the background. Mm-hmm. And then Julia almost looks at the camera as she enters last and magics the door closed. Mm-hmm. And it's just like something bad is going to happen here. Yeah. Like this is not going to go as as they expect it to. It just really is a great way of building up the tension using all sorts of tools that you have in an audiovisual medium like this. Mm. Again, like you've talked about this a lot, that aren't just dialogue, that aren't just something that's written on a page, but really let them 
bring in all sorts of kinds of artistry. Yeah, absolutely. And with that shot and Julia coming in last to the wellspring, her just in this like very light coat, but mm. this kind of more dark expression, not dark, like sinister, like she's playing something bad, like she has an evil intent, but like the dark expression of everything you know that has happened to her and like she's still participating in this but she's not okay and well that's interesting because i almost read her as more calm than anyone else which is another element of why is she so calm no absolutely like i do think that she has the calm but that calm i think is coming from the fact that she's not okay it's like it's Mm. like a dark calm Mm. of she's determined. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, what about you? What other magic moments did you want to talk about? I really, oh, loved. It was like, oh, when in chapter two about hinging an entire quest on a traumatized boy, Mm. they're actually interacting with Martin. One of the first things he says to them is, why were you following my sister? Mm. And I think that just that one line shows where his concern is that I think stems from him being sexually abused for all of this time. Him seeing these adults follow his young sister. He follows them and wants to find out what they're doing. So I just thought that that was such a touching moment for him that you see that he's concerned and worried that something could happen to one of his other siblings that he loves. Mm. And we do see that in the book, where at one point with one of the siblings, he was like, don't go over to Mm -hmm. Plover's house alone. He was like very adamant about it, trying to protect his other siblings from the horrors that he had to face. And so, yeah, I just thought that was a really good moment to have in there, especially considering that we know now he turns into the beast and still seeing that human loving side of him when he was young paired with, I think the actor provides like so much to us, even in these very small scenes, him feeling so guarded and almost like this kind of heavy gloom is hovering over him. Yeah, it's just, I feel like, rich with so many just very small nuances and this overwhelming feeling that this young actor creates. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing, we just have to mention that the last shot we see of Penny in the season is him looking at his severed hands. Poor Penny. <laughs> oh, Penny. Oh, no. Hashtag unlucky Penny. No kidding. The only one who has his hands removed of the group. Right? But I'm also interested in that choice. I'm wondering, is there a little small part of Martin that was a little more reluctant to kill Penny? Mm. Because everyone else he killed or Quentin he was, like, saving for last to kill... Well, Julia was there, but he seemed like he wasn't even, like, noticing or thinking about her. But with Penny, he could have killed him, like, Alice, Margot, and Elliot. But he just took his hands away, which Mm -hmm. I just think is an interesting choice. I wonder if there is any part of him, because he did have this connection with Penny for so long, that if he doesn't have to kill Penny, he wouldn't. 
we know in the different simulated probabilities that he would kill Penny mm-hmm. if he needs to, but maybe for him, as long as he can take certain abilities away from him, a part of him doesn't want to kill him. Yeah. Or as a traveler, he thinks he can maybe study Penny more. Mm-hmm. You know, why did he keep Victoria for so long? Uh, yeah, that does raise some interesting questions. Totally. But why don't we go into our next section, which is setting in society. What are you noticing about this episode? So I, I kind of had two different things I was I was focusing on. One is how, for Quint in particular, we're seeing his imaginations of Fillory mm-hmm. come into conflict with the realities of Fillory. Mm. Um, and I just found some really fascinating small details. One is when they're interacting with young Jane she still has the kind of characteristics of this young schoolgirl that we saw her have in Quentin's imaginations or his dreams or his visions of the book, which I find kind of interesting that, that he doesn't just imagine this kind of over-the-top British schoolgirl <laughs> type of properness and flights of fancy that we see in the character, that that actually was who she was. And, you know, that was something that they could have maybe interestingly gone a different direction, but they they kind of saw that as true. Which is kind of a really interesting implication that Plover wrote her well Mm -hmm. to capture her personality. Yeah. Which obviously, you know, with Plover, everything has a layer of problematic, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, it's interesting. Well, and the fact that later he says, well, in this very gross way, you know, (laughs) he could always see into Martin's mind or there was nothing that Martin could hide from him, you know, which obviously Uh we know other aspects of that really dysfunctional, abusive relationship, but it's interesting yeah, maybe Plover is very good at understanding people. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, if he could write Jane that well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It also makes sense because if you're grooming people, you have to understand what's motivating them and mm-hmm. how you can get them to do certain things, like how to manipulate them. Yeah, absolutely. But then we also see some really interesting cosmological elements of Fillory. Mm-hmm. Uh, the whole world as flat, floating through its space. Yeah. And, you know, that raises all sorts of kinds of questions. And in the books, Quentin doesn't know whether Fillory is flat or, you know, what shape it's in. But here we see exactly what it looks like. And it kind of helps ground us in this magical location. Mm-hmm. That apparently has 0.2% opium in its yeah. air. <laughs> oh my goodness. Which raises all sorts of questions about yeah. how does a place feel more magical? How do you fall more in love with a, a place? Uh, I mean, having magic is great, but having opium in the air, also helpful. Maybe Quentin can feel happier in Fillory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then, of course, the fact that the kings and queens of Fillory have to come from Earth. Yeah, that's a thing. (laughs) Yeah, and I think we're going to delve into this a lot over the series. We're really just getting introduced to this. Mm -hmm. But it brings up so many questions of authority and nativity and colonialism (laughs) and, like, all of these elements that I think are really interesting, particularly because... So often fantasy stories have components of that, especially Mm -hmm. our classics like 
Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings and many of these others that were written at a time when imperialism was still the modus operandi of the cultures that the authors are writing in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just... Uh, it is such a fascinating and thought-provoking system to have in this world that is, you know, when you think about it, just like, why? It doesn't make sense, which kind of goes into the kind of fanciful nature of these stories. But what happens to a society where that is the actual system? I'm I'm looking forward to, to seeing more of that. Definitely. And then the other element for setting in society that I was thinking about was gods and what the gods require or expect of the people around them. Because we see Quentin and Julia meet with Ember, and then we also see Julia's memories of the meeting with Reynard. In a way, both of them require a kind of blood sacrifice. Quentin has to give his blood to that stone, and then Renard, Renard just starts killing people. So I, I see in this episode this kind of idea of gods as not benevolent at all. Even Ember, a more benevolent god, still has the requirement of you giving something in order to see him, in order to come even to him in this dingy location that he's in now. Mm-hmm. And they both need faith. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this whole journey for Julia and the Free Traders was that process of Julia growing faith in Our Lady Underground. Obviously, it was a trick, but that was what they needed to get to that place to summon this god. Mm-hmm. And for Ember, it's Quentin, you're the one who never stopped believing in yeah. Fillory, stop loving Fillory. Mm-hmm. That is what makes him chosen for Ember. Yeah. They, they, they really have this kind of desire or need for faith or for humans' belief in them or for just their power over humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that be a mental or, or spiritual power or a physical dominance that we see, especially with Renard. Well, and that's the thing. I don't think that they need that, but I think that's what they want. Yeah, yeah. So it's what they require. Mm-hmm. And both demand a kind of respect. You know, you mentioned earlier how Emperor says, typically people will bow before me. Mm-hmm. In the same episode, having Renard say they should look away when they address him. Yeah. You know, I think these are things that are very much in conversation with one another. Yeah. Where even though Ember is a more helpful god, a god that is helping our protagonists in their quest, who is against the beast and all these other kinds of things, in many ways he is still operating in the same ways that Renard is, which when... At the end of the episode, Julia looks to the beast as someone who has confronted and defeated gods. Mm -hmm. It makes sense because we've seen this parallel being built throughout the episode. Yeah, yeah. What points did you have for setting in society? Yeah, I thought uh, just the whole episode format was kind of interesting. Having the storytelling in the format of a novel mm-hmm. with chapters. It was just interesting because it's Fillory and Further, book seven by yeah. Quentin Coldwater. And so, like, this is his telling of this story. Yeah, it's just, it's a really interesting thing coming from what he has found out about Plover and the fact that he already thought that Plover was the beast and still feeling like 
Jane had her book six mm-hmm. and he's going to write what's happening to them in a book seven. And when he's starting to write this book, he starts with the creation myth of Fillory. Yeah. And then goes to him. I know so much about this place. I didn't know that I would go there to summon a god. And so it's starting off, this is the trajectory of the episode and and, Mm. and what we're doing. And so, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting. And then how he would put in chapter titles and all of that. One of my favorites was chapter four, everything sucks now and why. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because it's just a great chapter title. And I think with books, if you have really good chapter titles, it's just great. You know, you can sometimes remember what's in the chapter by the title yeah. and it can be a really fun thing it, just like at the end of all, all our episodes we talk about the title of of the episode and mm-hmm. so that one is particularly funny to me because everything sucks now and why it's fillery in 2016 and thinking about the united states at the end of 2016 with trump winning the election and that title, Everything Sucks Now and Why, is just uh, kind of perfect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think this came out in 2015, but still very prescient. Yes, yes. So, yeah. I'm not saying that that's what the, the intention was, yeah. but it's so great. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing that I was really thinking about kind of for the societal element is... I was just kind of amused by the part where Quentin makes this big decision that Alice should be the one. And then when they actually meet the beast, he remembers all of the previous time loops. Mm -hmm. And so he's just like, oh yeah, like, of course Alice has it again. So it's like this thing that Quentin thought was so significant and revolutionary is like, it's already been done. Like he's already done it so many times before. This isn't the change that he thinks it is. So I just thought it was really kind of amusing if we parallel that. This white boy thinking he's thought of something revolutionary mm-hmm. that's like feminist and more equal, you know, and it's just like, no, this isn't anything new. Like, you're not coming up with something <laughs> new. Uh, so I just, I thought that that was quite amusing. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but why don't we move on to themes and schemes? Well, I wanted to talk about the memory patch. Mm. that Julia asks Marina to give her that is described by Jane, the Watcherwoman, as replacing a tragic truth with a beautiful falsehood. Mm. And I think that this is a really interesting way to bookmark the season for Julia when her losing her memory at the beginning of the series put her on a path that had its ups and downs, lots of downs, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but she found herself violated and felt like they had taken away her life from her by not offering her to go to break bills, by trying to take that memory from her, telling her that it didn't happen. And then at the end of the season, she asks for Marina to remove her memory, just as break bills did to both of them. I think it's just a a really great example of agency, of someone who makes a choice of what to do with their own body. You know, this, this mm-hmm. it's like the choice that Kira made, asking Julianne Richard to kill her mm-hmm. earlier in the season. You know, it is a 
choice that is damaging to her self or to her psyche in this case, but is still her choice to make as the best option when she has been traumatized, when she has been violated, when she has been assaulted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's such a great moment between Julia and Marina mm-hmm. because it must be a painful thing to do. It's caused them so much pain, what happened to them. And now Marina is being asked to do that to someone else. Yeah. And and Marina could have done that before, like we've talked about, when she kicked Julia out of her hedge. She could have taken the memories if she mm-hmm. wants, but she doesn't do that. She crossed out the star tattoos on Julia's arm, but she didn't take away her knowledge of magic Mm -hmm. and everything that she had learned and experienced with marina and that hedge and so it clearly is something that she doesn't want to do even if she has the power to do it she has not chosen to use that to take people's memories away and yeah now she's asked to yeah yeah i will say though how marina it is to in this changed, beautiful memory to have Our Lady Underground kiss Julia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I see you, Marina. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I think that it is a powerful moment for Julia and then goes back to kind of what we're talking about with gods for Ember to not care and to just remove the patch to say, oh, you're welcome and best of luck. And all these other kinds of things, because he's just so above the actual concerns of the people he's around. Versus Jane, who's like, this is here for a reason. Exactly. Yeah. So he does a kind of violation Mm -hmm. as well. He takes something from Julia that she chose to have there. And so at the end of the episode, when she wants to make the deal with the beast, she has now been violated twice by gods. She... Mm -hmm. sees him as someone else who has been not only violated, but someone who has, yeah, confronted gods. And again, she uses her agency in a way that is questionable, to say the least. (laughs) But... You mean letting all of these other people die? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Working with someone who is willing to kill and, you know, all these other kinds of things. But I think that the decision is narratively well-constructed because we have seen Julia dealing with these kinds of issues throughout the season and seeing her, yeah, try hard and have setbacks, but struggle to make her own decisions in a world that keeps trying to violate her. Mm -hmm. And this is her response and it makes sense. Yeah, I get it, Julia. That's smart. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Totally. It's resourceful. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I just, I found that a really illuminating part of the series that I don't think I picked up on as well my first watch through, Mm. you know, without us kind of sitting down and talking about the episodes and talking about especially Julia's perspective and what she's been going through throughout the season. Mm. What about you? What did you have for themes and schemes? Well, one of them, I think, is the writing room. Mm. It's bringing this idea that trauma does not go away. It's brought with people wherever they go. So as 
we've been talking about this whole season with Quentin hoping that his depression and these different things will go away as he escapes into Break Bills or Break Bills South or a new relationship or Fillory. But that's just not the case. And I think that the fact that the writing room is what is the setting for this wellspring does continue that idea. Yeah. In a really like striking way and a really tragic way. It's a really powerful idea that the wellspring is the source of Martin's power. Mm-hmm. And it looks like the room where he had no power. Yeah. And as Margot wisely says, Fillory needs meds way more than it needs magic. <laughs> Which is true. Yeah. It's a funny line, but it also is like brings you right there to magic is not a replacement for medication. Mm-hmm. Magic is not your way to cope with mental health traumas or challenges or, you know, whatever is going on, even though it seems like we want it to be the fix. And that's what Quentin wanted to be the fix for his dad's brain cancer, right? And again, it's showing magic doesn't just fix problems. It's not a replacement for other emotional work that people have to do. Mm -hmm. And I did really like that here, Plover mentioned that it's the wellspring magic that killed everything human inside Martin Mm. rather than... Oh, what happened to him, the abuse that he suffered turned him into a monster, Mm. you know? It's more that in his pursuit of safety and power to have that safety that he was never able to feel because of the terrible abuse that he suffered, it was reaching for that that killed the human things inside him, not the abuse itself. Because that would be a bad message about people who are abused. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm glad that they added that in. And I'm sure we'll we'll go a little more into that as we get into season two. Yeah, it it is such a good point. I mean, let's look at what, episode two, the source of magic? Mm -hmm. It's pain. Yeah. And the writing room being the wellspring, the source of all magic, Mm. the representation of the center of martin's pain yeah where that pain occurred you know is a a really powerful visual manifestation of that axiom of that that truth in this universe it also shows the ways in which martin has corrupted fillory that he has brought the pain that occurred on earth into fillory Mm -hmm. and he has pain not only caused to him but also that he has caused to others and he has lost his humanity to it by continuing to go back for that power it's uh yeah a really great way of weaving together a lot of these thematic branches that we've been talking about this season what is the source of magic what is the point of magic Mm -hmm. uh and how the beast takes all of those to such extremes But, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Like, the point of magic for the Beast is to control all access to Fillory. Mm -hmm. That's what he wants. He wants the button. He wants travelers to not be able to come in to Fillory because he feels like he needs a place that 
he has control over, mm-hmm. that no one can do something to him that he doesn't want. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's out of that fear that the point for him is the control yeah. that the Mayakovsky yeah. And, yeah. and Dean Fogg have talked about. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Wow, this show's doing more things than I thought it was. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, why don't we go into our last major section, which is from another point of view. Whose point of view are you thinking about? Our narrator, Quentin <laughs> Coldwater. And it's more than just me trying to do the easy path because we get his narration and actually can hear his perspective throughout a lot of the, the show. <laughs> but I also just find it, yeah, really compelling and interesting to see a character who is literally putting themselves into the story in this narrative framing. He is, yeah, writing Fillerine further book seven and basically showing himself as protagonist in the same way the Chatwins were protagonists. I think that that is just so telling. Like, we really get more explicit than ever Quentin showing his perspective of himself and his relationship with Fillory. Mm. And there clearly is power in that relationship. It, it is what convinces Ember. It is what Jane talks to him about, why he continues to confront the beast. But it also has limits, and it's also delusional in some ways. And Quentin is trying to come to grips to that with that. He narrates that he was 100% sure that he was the High King. <laughs> and him, I think, realizing, especially at that moment, but as the episode goes on, that he isn't special in all these ways, I find fascinating. And, and I think that it is well built up before he makes the decision to, to tell Alice that she should wield the knife. Mm-hmm. Because when they are with Ember... Quentin yells at Ember. He chides him for just sitting there, you know, asking him, why don't you care? Which I can understand Quentin being so upset about that because what is special about him is that he does care. He cares in a way that he doesn't see Ember caring. Mm -hmm. But then we get from Ember, you know, which uh, he didn't know, that Ember has tried all of these different things. True. So it's not necessarily that Ember doesn't care, but he doesn't care enough to die for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I was kind of talking about this in The Setting Society. Quentin is coming to terms with the fact that Fillory is not just this magical realm, this magical story that he always treasured and that he in some way thought he would be a part of, but that there are perversions of it. Him meeting Plover, I think, is a really good example of this, where he's meeting the person who wrote those books and did such awful things, and who clearly has this deep connection to the magic of this world, and that sickens him. Mm-hmm. But he also needs something from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he also steps in the same shoes. He starts writing a filler and further book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I see Quentin in this episode confronting the powers that be of Fillory. Ember in some ways, Plover in some ways, even Jane. And feeling like he finds them wanting and 
does what he can to make up for their failures. But we can't talk about Quentin without also talking about the fact that Quentin is in ways deluding himself. (laughs) Not only in that he's a chosen one, but, you know, how much of this is his escape? Mm -hmm. Fillory's always been his escape from his depression, from social anxiety, from not having friends, from, you know, whatever it is about his life. And he is in one of the worst places of his life for things that he's done. You know, when he reunites with the rest of the group and he Mm -hmm. thinks about, oh, that's right, we all hate each other. And it's mostly my fault, you know. I'm like, yes, finally blame yourself, Quentin. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> he continues to push forward and continues to make these romantic proclamations like Alice should be the one to wield the knife, that he's choosing this, he wants to do this, you know, which again, like you mentioned, he's done a bunch of times. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that highlights how all of this is part of his... Epic. Yeah, exactly. And it's part of him. It's part of it's part of how he uses Fillory to relate to the world and how he sees himself in Fillory and sees himself in the world. Uh, and yeah, how he romanticizes that. I think one of the best examples of this is when he's talking to Jane and he tells her that he's sorry he couldn't protect her. <laughs> You're sorry you couldn't protect the watcher woman who does time magic and has trapped you in a time loop exactly like it's so (laughs) self-aggrandizing to do that and frankly misogynist like Mm -hmm. there's absolutely an element of it that is oh this is an attractive woman who is the jane of these books who's a young woman you know like all these kinds of things and yeah. It's just... And then we're brought to the reality that you're not a master magician. You can't hold this knife. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I just, I find his grappling with all of these things very interesting because he does see growth. He does have some revelations here that he's at least confronting some of the problematic ways that he's seen himself and he's seen Fillory. But he still has so far to go, mm-hmm. you know, he still has uh, work to do. And it's work that he hasn't had the chance to do because of these time loops, because of the beast killing him a bunch of times. <laughs> um, and one of the elements of this season ending is that, okay, well, he's not dead. He does still have time to work on these things. You know, mm-hmm. he does still have a possible future in continuing to confront those and to grow. And we don't know if it's entirely different, but it's probably very different from what's happened in the past. So, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, one of the other elements the time loop does is it, it creates a narrative version of the loops that we put ourselves in mm-hmm. and that Quentin has been putting himself in. So the breaking of that time loop, you know, maybe there will be a breaking of Quentin's loops now, uh, Mm. at least in some ways. So, yeah. I get you, Quentin. I understand (laughs) it. Absolutely. I used to imagine myself in Hogwarts and what I would do in Harry's place (laughs) all the time. But it is uh, just, I think, another example of of how Quentin is narratively dealing with the fact that he is part of an ensemble. You know? (laughs) He's not the main character, which is a change between this and the books, too. You know, that he's not the sole protagonist. He's not even the unpowered tech savvy one <laughs> exactly, in the group. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I'm 
finding more depth in Quentin this watch through than I have in the past as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's one of the things that this show does so well. I mean, we get his narration, how humorous he can be. We really enjoy it. And we see both the admirable things in him and the things that he really needs to work on. Yeah. You know, and I think it's that it's that really important process that people have to go through as they're realizing whatever the thing is, you know, things that have been socialized into them or stories that they've bought into or whatever it is that is not accurate or that is problematic, you know, whether it's about race, whether it's about ability, whether it's about gender and sexuality, like we are often taught the wrong thing (laughs) from society, from our families, from uh, the classes that we're in, you know, it's a winding, painful process of trying to understand why the natural thing that we think or believe or the attitude we have or, in Quentin's case, the story he thinks he's in is not right. Mm-hmm. And how to try to break out from that. Yeah, it's it's a messy process. And I think that that's one of the things that is so great about Quentin's character. He is in that messy process. He's trying He's learning, sometimes slower than we want him to be, but yeah, that's that's how people are, hopefully, if they actually are trying to, to be better. Yeah, yeah. What perspective did you bring to discuss? I want to talk about Elliot. Oh, Elliot. <laughs> I know, of course, right? Because this is a big decision that he makes. Yeah. When he is told not only that you're the one who can fulfill this deal to get this knife that could kill the beast. The only one. You're you're the only one. I mean, they didn't continue to check people. That's true. That that we know of. But you're the one that, yeah, needs to be sold for this knife, essentially. (laughs) Sold into a high position, but still. And not only that, but this is a position for life. This is a position that is going to take Earth from you. Your home, your friends, your education, and your potential romantic future. And you're stuck, basically. Mm -hmm. Your identity in some cases, Mm because if he's a gay man... Yeah, forced into a heterosexual marriage. Yeah, so so that's why it's such a big decision and it's such a... Ah, no, Elliot, you know? So I really wanted to think about his perspective in making that choice because he says, I'm miserable. My life, it doesn't work and nothing has ever fixed that. Alcohol, drugs, sex, magic, you know, nothing has fixed that misery that he feels. And I I was kind of thinking about him feeling like he's been like just treading water Mm. for so long And then the trauma with Mike happened, and he just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And so he's just been drowning since then, and has barely even cared that he's drowning. Like, he's drowning slowly, and he knows it. And now there's this other option that is kind of like a life ring thrown to him. Fillory forcing him to do something different than what he knows he'll be doing without it. Mm -hmm. 
basically until he dies from liver failure. <laughs> and so it's kind of like the only option to save his life and like pull him up out of drowning. And so for him, I'm thinking that like, this isn't just the, I mean, sure, we could say that it's a noble choice to mm-hmm. save Fillory, <laughs> save the world, save uh, his friends from being killed by the beast. And I, and I think that that's a huge part of it because he says like, this could make my life more than just about me. Mm. But I think it's also a really significant choice for him because it's choosing life. Mm-hmm. Something that thus far he hasn't really been choosing since everything that happened with Mike. Because he knows his self-destructive behaviors are going to kill him if he doesn't stop them. So in choosing this, choosing to be in a place where he's not going to have access to all the drugs. I mean, sure, the opium in the air. But (laughs) he's not going to have access to all of these different things that he has been using as his coping mechanisms. He may not even have his friends there. But he thinks that... I I think he thinks it's his only chance, really, to choose to live and try to break out from this self-destructive spiral that he's in. And I was also thinking about, you know, there's a part of him that must find it alluring that he'll be royalty. He'll be the high king. (laughs) Because if you remember back, all of these people at Breakbills just thought he was a person that would be summering with Kennedys and he (laughs) let them believe it, right? Because he didn't want to think about or talk about or really be from this rural farming Indiana background that he was. Yeah. And so this is like the ultimate like high king, this other self that he's coveted and that he's made himself into, you know, as the greatest creative project of his life, right? This is just an X level of it. (laughs) So I think that probably helps in (laughs) this decision Mm -hmm. as well. But yeah, I think most of it is, it's from the misery. It's from his inability thus far to cope in any way that isn't self-destructive. Mm-hmm. Here, this is a productive choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That will help other people. Mm-hmm. Especially coming off of his acid carrot decision. <laughs> yes. That endangered them all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and put Marco in a situation where she had to kill someone. Yeah. You know, and Penny. Mm-hmm. And so I think probably part of his decision also is coming from that guilt. Yeah. And like even the disappointment that Margot's had in him. With like, oh, yeah, you live to drink another day. Taking those things to heart to try to do something different with his life. Yeah. Elliot. I know. Elliot. We love you. We really do. Well, I think that's going to bring us to revisiting the title. Have you brought me little cakes? Uh, Not today, but I could happily go out and grab some (laughs) for us. Oh, I would love that. (laughs) Yeah. This title's great. It's amazing. It's delightful. (laughs) It's what I've wanted from their titles for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, as someone who who I think I've only seen the show once before and 
I just don't have as good a memory as you do. Like, most of the titles, I'm like, what even happens that episode? Mm -hmm. This one. (laughs) You know. I knew. (laughs) (laughs) And I think especially when you consider these conversations that we've had about gods and Mm -hmm. how fickle they are and how uncaring they are and how much they only care about themselves. This is a great line because it is ridiculous, but also because it shows the priorities of a god like Ember. Right. In the midst of him hiding away in in his former shrine because Fillory is being destroyed by the beast. Have you brought me little cakes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fact that they're little cakes, too, is just <laughs> perfect. Precisely, because for something to be a little cake means that it is done in a way that is more about visuals <laughs> and excess rather Elitism. than... Yeah, not like a big cake that can feed a bunch of people, mm-hmm. but is easier to make. You know, each little cake has to be made with more detail, you know. go Takes watch more labor. Exactly. Go watch Great Bridge Bake Off. You'll mm-hmm. understand. Uh, <laughs> we need 24 of these. They need to look exactly alike. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, it is just a, a delightful, delightful line and, and a great episode title. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And perfect because it's like little cakes. He wouldn't even need to cut the cake himself. Right. You know, like yes, everything exactly. is delivered on a platter. Yeah. 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 Perfect. (laughs) Delightful. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, that's this episode. So what's happening next time on The Magicians? So we are going to have a episode just focusing on the first season before we we move into season two. If you were with us for our Hunger Games read-through, it'll be similar to that. Just at the end of each book, we would talk about the book <laughs> and uh, the arcs of the characters and, and things that we're seeing to kind of wrap up what's happening. So that'll be next week. And then the week after that, we'll move into the first episode of season two. Exciting. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And now that we've finished the season, we hope that you will not only consider joining us on Patreon, but you'll tell a friend about the show. Yeah. We want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find her designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out! out.